my name's Patricia King, and today I have an exciting message for you to hear. Stop! What are you thinking? We can't make it look like Patricia King is endorsing fighting. <clears throat> Hi, folks. Uh, Chris Rosebeer here. Just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and your financial contributions to continue to bring this important radio outreach to you as well as to the world. And unfortunately, we don't have the the major cash resources that Patricia King does, but we have you, our listener audience, to help uh, support us financially so that we can keep bringing this radio program to you and to the world. If you don't already support Fighting for the Faith financially, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And there are perks to being a crew member. Just keep listening to the program to find out what the latest perk is. And, of course, if you would like to make a one-time contribution, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. We loved making it. We hope you enjoyed listening to it. Here we go. It's time... Another edition of Fighting for the Fade. Wednesday, July 18th, 2012. Alright, I need to prop this up so that I can see it. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Here's the idea. God's Word is true. God didn't lie. God cannot lie. And therefore, what he's revealed in his word is to be to be believed. And in the Christian church, it's not only to be believed, it's to be taught. Because you can't believe something you're not taught. You understand what I'm saying. I mean, if you were to look out right now at what's going on in so many churches, here's a, a, a valid question to ask. And that is, <clears throat> if this type of teaching persists, what should we expect Christians to be believing um, 10, 15, 20 years from now, especially as the younger generation grows up believing these things. That, that's the idea. So, I mean, it, it, it kind of works off of this principle. Garbage in, garbage out. Real simple. I mean, that's, you know, when I learned how to program computers, that was one of the things that, that I was taught. You know, junk code equals an unusable application. That's kind of the idea. So good quality catechesis, sound biblical doctrine in, and what comes out? Christians who believe what the scriptures say. It's really not that hard. <laughs> it's like... But see, the, so here's the deal. I mean, you give kids a steady diet. 
of what it is that's being preached from pulpits today? I mean, your guess is as good as mine as to what uh, Christianity is supposedly going to be teaching in 20 years, which is kind of silly because if you think about it, the Bible makes it clear that the Christian faith has been once for all delivered to the saints. Christianity isn't one of those things that should be changing as the culture changes. Uh, Quite the contrary. If the culture is changing in a bad way, Christians must stand their ground. And you're going, well, wait a second. If we stand our ground, we might get shot at. People might persecute us. People might make fun of us and, and say that we're not relevant. So, and this is different than what Jesus experienced. How? You know, you, you, you get what I'm saying. So, yeah, j- j- don't think for a second that you that you as a Christian have a right to not be persecuted, to not be ridiculed, to not be mocked, to not be, well, you know, to suffer for your convictions, to suffer for what the scriptures say. Because keep in mind, every human being is born dead in trespasses and sins and at war with God. So what is it we should expect the world to be doing regarding our message? Their first response should be, you're full of it. You're not telling me the truth. I don't believe in that God. I hate that God. That should be what we should expect. So, you know, somehow we've lost the idea that the message of the gospel is supposed to be scandalous. And so people have come up with great new methodologies that will take away the scandal of the cross. At least that's what they claim. But what they've really done is remove the cross. See, the cross isn't scandalous if you remove it. And I'm not just talking about them physically not having it on their buildings or inside their buildings like Willow Creek. It was weird. You know, a few years ago, I attended that um, Reveal Now conference at uh, Willow Creek. And kid you not, couldn't find a cross anywhere on that campus. Nowhere. There was there was no cross at Willow Creek. I'm thinking, this is strange. But I did find a cross, and it was on the cover of Doug Paget's book that was for sale in the bookstore. So I was able to eventually find a cross, but it was <clears throat> and anyway, so the idea is this, you know, you know, some churches, you know, they just removed the cross physically, and some churches they completely removed the cross physically as well as from the preaching. And usually if you don't have a cross on anywhere on your building, you're just not going to get the cross anywhere in your preaching. So it's just something I've noticed. But anyway, so what we do here, it's politically incorrect. What we do here, well, the, the communitarians would say, you're not engaging in civil discourse. It's it's very uncivil of you to to pull out your Bible and compare what we're saying to what the Bible says. That's very that's not that's not civilized. It's not civil conversation. You're you're being mean and and a gunky head. You know that's what the communitarians would say. But uh, who cares what they say, right? And uh, you're going communitarians. Yeah, listen. If you don't know what a communitarian is, listen to my uh, lecture from May entitled Resistance is Feudal, You Will Be Assimilated into the Community. If you haven't listened to that episode of Fighting for the Faith, that's like that's like a mandatory uh, episode uh, that all people who are listening to this program ought to listen to. It'll bring you up to speed on a few things. Anyway, so let's talk about what we're going to do on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith, because I'm looking at my time going, Whew, yeah, I'm not sure how I'm going to get a, this all in. <clears throat> we got four things on deck today, four things. Uh, Number one, Rob Bell has resurfaced and has put out a brand new video that's kind of a teaser video for the book that apparently he has coming out in March. 
And you think it's it's July. So you have July, August, September, October, November, December, January, February, March. I mean, that's a lot of fingers. And <laughs> so you know, I just I counted it up. I mean, so we're like what, we're eight months away from the latest from the newest Rob Bell book. And I watched this video and it's my first response was is that this new video from Rob Bell is a parody video. Apparently, Rob Bell is now doing parody videos of Rob Bell videos. It, it, that's what it's like. This is a parody of a Rob Bell video done by Rob Bell himself. At least that's what it seemed like to me. So we're going to take a listen to <clears throat> the latest pontifications of uh, the uh, uh, postmodern uh, emergent uh, Rob Bell. And uh, so we got that to do. Uh, then we'll take our break. When we come back from the break, I did a brief interview today with uh, Pastor uh, Daniel Price of Trinity Church of Northwest Arkansas, and uh, th- and so we we're talking about the T-shirts that uh, he, he and his partner uh, donated for us to get through the lean summer months here. But there was there was a story in that interview you've got to hear, uh, where he used to be a you know praise and worship uh, leader, and uh, apparently. Um, the Psalm 51, you know, the, the, you know, in Psalm 51 where it says, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. You're familiar with that song, psalm. It, you know, it's sung as a song. And, you know, but that apparently didn't make the, uh, the praise set list um, because the, you know, the seeker-driven pastor who, um, you know, he was learning, it was, you know, at the church at it nicks that song but i i i want you to hear it from him how that went down and the reasons for nixing the uh for nixing psalm 51 and uh and then after that we're going to continue with our work through uh deconstruction of gene robinson's bishop gene robinson of the episcopal church is his keynote address at the uh, uh total darkness presbyterian dinner i'm sorry they call themselves more light but it's really total darkness so we're going to continue with that because i'm i'm want you to again i'm going to be paying attention to and highlighting the the rhetorical techniques that he's using to deconstruct truth and create the impression that he's got the biblical high ground when he's got anything but. And then hour number two, we've got a sermon from a church called Substance Church up in uh, Friedley, Minnesota. And uh, they're a multi-site, seeker-driven church. And we're going to be listening to Mark Mellon um, tell us about how to be a catalyst. So, um, yeah, I... I never wanted to be a catalyst. I just want to be a human. I, you know, I leave the cattle, you know, thing to the, you know, to cows and things like, yeah, anyway, you get what I'm saying. So uh, with that, we're going to uh, dive into the program proper. And, you know, like I said, we've got a lot of ground to cover. And uh, if you'd like to make yourself comfortable, please do. It helps enhance your listener experience. If you are able to sit down, put on some fuzzy bunny slippers that the weather permits in your neck of the woods. And of course, if you'd like to enjoy an adult beverage, we do not have a problem with that. But keep in mind that the biblical prohibition is against drunkenness. You do not want to be enslaved to the good gifts that God has given us. So with that, we're going to dive into the program. Here we go. Rob Bell update music. 
special people change? How many lives are living strange? Where were you while we were getting high? Slowly walking down the hall, faster than a cannonball. Where were you while we were getting high? Someday you will find me hopping in the landslide in a champagne supernova in the sky. Someday you will find me hopping in the landslide in a champagne supernova. no idea what those lyrics mean. That's uh, Champagne Supernova from the uh, British band Oasis, which somehow I think is appropriate whenever we do a Rob Bell update. But Rob Bell has a brand new, brand spanking new uh, book that's supposedly coming out. In fact, by the way, um, they released this video um, on the occasion of the release of the paperback version of Rob Bell's book, Love Wins. Uh, Yes, a fine heretical book it is, too. But uh, Rob Bell apparently is wandering the streets of uh, the the, uh, the back alleys of a neighborhood in Southern California where he now lives because he's working on his brand new television series. Apparently, he and the uh, the producer of the the television show Lost have they've decided to collaborate and they're going to be creating a series of television shows. Uh, about Rob Bell's spiritual journey. I, I no kidding. I have no idea when these uh, these programs will air, but I I want to want everyone to know this that when they do air, um we are going to lift our no wagering rule here at Fighting for the Faith. Now normally I, you know, when things come up where people could be listening and, you know, betting money, you know, wagering, uh, we we invoke the no wagering clause here at Fighting for the Faith. But when Rob Bell's brand new uh, television program uh, comes out, the, we're having a we're going to be having a full on betting pool, and uh, the 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 thing that we're going to be betting on is how many episodes of Rob Bell's program will air before we see Rob Bell's character and the person playing Rob Bell in this spiritual journey television program praying in the lotus position so you know just so you know with that you know that will be coming up and uh yeah so i i understand that you know that that could create some controversy you know full-on wagering going on but you know you know check with your local you know you know listeners to fighting for the faith as to how you can uh you know have your own betting pool going as to when rob bell will actually be seen Praying in the lotus position. But anyway, here's uh, uh, Rob Bell's latest video called Rediscovering Wonder. And all I can say is is that I had no idea that Rob Bell made parody videos of Rob Bell. Yeah, here, listen in. My three-year-old daughter recently burst through the front door of our house and she ran into the room that I was in and she's waving this new blue plastic shovel and her eyes are as wide as they can get and she's darting back and forth going, Dad, 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 new blue shovel, Dad, Dad, new blue shovel, Dad, new blue shovel. You can just see all the gears in her mind spinning, imagining all of the holes that we're going to dig together in the sand. It's like she held in her hand an entryway into a whole new world of possibility and potential all of it because now she has a new blue plastic shovel 
<laughs> Woo, yeah, that's deep. Man, woo, yeah. Gotta talk about the spiritual implications of new blue plastic shovels. Wow, yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> there is this primal sense of wonder and awe in the face of a child when they're fully absorbed in the moment. They're, they're thrilled with this sense of anticipation, just what kind of experiences are right around the corner. It is something to behold, this pure, unbridled joy. Life. <laughs> And then I think about kids that I've experienced. I mean, I was a Cub Scout leader, okay? You just hear, oh, yeah, all these kids have pure, unbridled joy. You know, I'm sorry, but, you know, um, this is not my experience. This is not my experience at all. In fact, um, I could point you to kids today who, if their parents took them to the beach, they wouldn't experience the wonder of the big blue wet thing. They'd be terrified by it and get convincing them to even go near the water. Well, it's just not going to happen. There's no joy there. It's sheer terror. It <laughs> has a way of beating that wonder and awe out of us. Yeah. Doesn't it? Yeah, life just has a way of beating wonder out of us. You get betrayed. You pour time and energy and money into something and then it blows up in your face. It doesn't go the way that you thought it was supposed to or you lose something or you lose someone. And it's... <laughs> what? <laughs> what is this? Oh, man. <laughs> As if there's this ever so thin layer of hardness that begins to build around your heart and then you're burned again and it's like that layer gets a little harder and then you have a heart attack and die because of the calcification and a little thicker and so you roll your eyes more frequently and you're a bit more cynical and jaded and skeptical and you 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 pull back you retreat i mean why would i stick my neck out if i'm gonna get shot at like that again and so ever so gradually, with your arms folded over your chest, you become one more spectator. Oh, no. This is the bane of humanity. I... <laughs> this is just so vapid. Like I said, this is like Rob Bell has decided to make a parody video of himself. I mean, really? I don't believe... This is what God intends for us. As oh, that's great. I mean, please share more. Written in the Psalms, taste and see that God is good. Well, taste is about the full engagement of our senses. Taste is about our belief that there's way more going on here than we first realized. Can I wait a second here? I, yeah, let me think back to kindergarten. You know, there was a book out there, everything you needed to learn, you, you need to know you learned in kindergarten. Now, I remember in kindergarten, we talked about our different senses. Let me work through this. We had the sense of taste. We had the sense of touch, of smelling, seeing, and hearing okay now last time i checked you know going back to kindergarten now you know because you know that's where all the wonder is um you know, um when i would taste things 
it wasn't an all-encompassing experience of all of my senses. It was just an experience of my taste sense. Well, you can actually say that the olfactory, uh, you know, uh, you know, organs there were working together. So scent, you know, taste and smell were kind of working together. And you could obviously touch it, but I mean, um, I. Yeah, I think you're isogeting there. Uh, you need to go back to the wonder years when you were in kindergarten and work that out. Taste is about our flesh and blood encounters with the divine and people and places. And the divine and people and places. Uh-huh. You know, here's the best. What's funny is is that Rob Bell. I mean, the reason why people listen to him is because you know he he seems so magical. But if I mean if I mean literally this is nothing more than you know a helium balloon that's caught your attention. Just take a needle, stick it in the thing, and it pops. I mean, really. Sense, taste is about your awareness that God is as close and near as your breath. Uh huh. Who are you talking to again? God is as close and near as your breath. Yes, well, God is omnipresent. This is true. Um, but see, yeah, when we're talking about God, I mean, you got to keep in mind those who are dead in trespasses and sins, um, they're still under the wrath of God. I, you know, I hate to say it, but the Apostle John, who happened to learn directly from Jesus, um, this is what he said, uh, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that those who don't believe in him remain under the wrath of God. So, yeah, is that the God you want to have close by? Jesus invites us to this taste. To oh, yeah. It, Jesus invites us to this taste. Oh, yeah, it sounds so seductive. Experience the new thing that God is doing in the world. And he said, uh, Experience the new thing that God is doing in the world? What's that? I mean, he got all this weird language, all this weird mumbo-jumbo terminology that uh, Rob Bell uses. Oh, yeah, taste and experience the new thing that Jesus is doing in the world. What is the cash value of that sentence? What new thing is Jesus doing in the world? What are you talking about? That to experience this, you must become like a child. Now, there's a distinction to be made here. Childlike is much different than childish. Oh, yeah. Childish is essentially a posture of the heart. It is a hardness. It is a refusal. It is the resistance of that which isn't thoroughly familiar. Yeah, kind of like, you know, postmodernism is childish, right? Is that what you mean? Childish is the stomping of the foot, the folding of the arms. The cynical, jaded, there's nothing new here. But childlike, childlike is the ways in which you are open to the wonder and awe. <laughs> his body gestures that you are open. You, you, you got to see it. He's opening his hands and you are open to, I mean... Seriously, I think a, a Buddhist monk could uh, deliver this uh, this script. That is around us yeah. every single moment of every single day. Yeah. Now, there is a great deal of misunderstanding, especially in religious and faith communities, about the very nature of this taste. And yeah, okay, so please clear us up. Get, 
help us un rightly understand what this taste is all about. In these days, all sorts of very, very strange, ongoing, heated discussions yeah. about trying to get the words right, as if Jesus' highest intention for us is that we would have correct doctrinal thinking. It uh -huh. So as if, it's as if Jesus' highest thing for us is that we would have correct doctrinal thinking. Can I point the, like the out the obvious here? Y'all remember the story of the emperor's new clothes, right? Where you know the emperor paid all this money for this uh, this these guys to fabricate this most brilliant uh, wardrobe for him using the the well invisible thread and stuff like that. And so, no sooner had they finished creating this brand these brand new clothes for the emperor that he decided to go parading around uh, in his kingdom. In his brand new set of duds, and it and uh, well, the problem is, is that he was wearing nothing, and some little kid had the audacity to point out, "Hey, the emperor's naked." Right. Okay. Now, let me back the video up a little bit and see if you can catch the problem here. Okay, this is what we call a self-defeating proposition. A self-defeating proposition. Now, just so you know. A self-defeating proposition sounds something like this. You know, somebody will come up to you and say, all truth is relative. And you'll go, okay, so you're saying all truth is relative. Correct. There is no absolute truth. All truth is relative. And then you point out and you go, now, wait a second. Um, isn't the statement all truth is relative, isn't that an absolute truth? And they'll go, huh? Right. And so you go, wait a second. So if all truth is relative, then the statement that you made about all truth being relative, that's an absolute. So you would have to say that all truth is relative except for the one truth that all truth is relative. You see, it doesn't work that way. I mean, so see if you can figure this out. I mean, this is a self-defeating proposition, and it's just so ridiculously postmodern. It's silly. Um, but listen again. Hey. Now... There is a great deal of misunderstanding, especially in religious and faith communities, yeah. about the very nature of this taste. And there are, in these days, all sorts of very, very strange, ongoing, heated discussions about trying to get the words right, as if Jesus' highest intention for us is that we would have correct doctrinal thinking. If that's the case, then Jesus would have said, blessed are those who are more right than everybody else. Rob Bell said while correcting everybody else. Did you catch it? I mean, that's what's going on. Rob Bell is correcting everybody, saying that those of you who are focusing in on correct theology, you're wrong for doing that because that's not what Jesus is about. In other words, he is assuming that his theology is correct, and he's correcting those who are insisting on correct theology. Absolutely utter utter confusion and it's a self-defeating proposition and by the way this is one of the easy ways of uh correcting and showing the absurdity of postmodernism okay think about it what, what is postmodernism very famous for one of the things they're extremely famous for is what well language deconstruction okay where apparently words don't have any fixed meanings. Who, you know, the famous uh, guys who brought this into the church would be McLaren, Paget, and Jones, right? Rob Bell in, uh, as well has brought this in. He doesn't talk about deconstruction, he just does it. But uh, they learned this from Jacques Derrida, right? And, uh, he, well, here's the idea is that Derrida and these postmoderns would point out, oh, you know, all words are culturally. Uh, 
are culturally created uh, symbols and that they don't have any fixed meaning and therefore they can mean just about anything, right? And so that's their way of basically getting away from truth. Now, so they teach you language deconstruction. Now, Derrida assumes that you're going to use language deconstruction on everybody else's books except for his. His books on language deconstruction are to be the books that are taken and understood literally. You can't, you, you, it would be cheating, apparently, in their way of thinking to basically say, all right, well, let's apply language deconstruction to Derrida, right? By the way, th I did this uh, with Doug Paget one time. I, I may have mentioned this on the program, but uh, last, it was, it was two years ago now, it'll be two years in October, I debated uh, Doug Paget on the doctrine of hell. And prior to the event, you know, they, they took all of us uh, who were participating in the debate out to dinner. And so I'm sitting across the table from uh, from Doug Padgett. And he, you know, he had uh, sent me a, a preview copy of his forthcoming book at the time. Now, it's the book's already out, but, you know, it has something to do with uh, something, you know, church in the invented age or something like that. And so, you know, I, you know, I, I read it. And uh, he asked me, well, what did you think of the book? And I, go, oh, and I said, well, you know, funny you would ask, but uh, let, me, you know, let me ask you a question. Are, are you a Hegelian? He goes, what do you mean am I a Hegelian? What does being a Hegelian have anything to do with the, my book about church in the inventive age? I said, well, well, Doug, I mean, you don't expect me to take your book literally here. I mean, I, I'm just telling you what I experienced while reading your book in conversation within community. I mean, what I my takeaway from it is is that uh, this was a fine book that was teaching the Hegelian dialectic, and he got he got visibly mad, visibly angry at me because what was I doing? I was employing his little word games and tricks on his book. Okay, you can't do that. Okay, that's cheating, apparently. See, same with Rob Bell here. So here Rob Bell is taking a swipe at those people who are talking about correct theology and correct doctrine, and somehow that's outside of the concept of wonder. But notice, he, in a very condescending way, is basically assuming that his idea and his position, his theology, his doctrine is correct, and he's correcting those who believe in correct theology. Yeah, it's a self-defeating theology and philosophy that Rob Bell is embracing here. But, you know, there's a whole bunch of people who are going to go, yeah, man, did you see how, like, Rob Bell, like, you know, took his arms and, like, spread them out and talked about, you know, opening up to the wonder of God, man. And, you know, there's, like, a whole bunch of people out there who they just are not open to the wonder because, you know, they're into, like, sound doctrine and, like, theology and stuff. And that's not like what Jesus is about, man. And, you know, because Jesus is all about wonder, dude. And you, 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 that's what's going on here. I mean, you basically have to have, like, zero capability of rational thought to, you know, to not see through this. But uh, anyway, let me back this up and we will continue. Here's Rob Bell. There's all sorts of very, very strange, ongoing, heated discussions about trying to get the words right, as if Jesus' highest intention for us is that we would have correct doctrinal thinking. If that's the case, then Jesus would have said, blessed are those who are more right than everybody else. It's one thing to talk... Uh, this complete fallacious argument. ...about it. Because God the Holy Spirit has talked about the importance of teaching sound doctrine. It's another thing to taste. It's one thing to be right. It's another thing to be overwhelmed. He said while assuming that he's right.
See, the right thing is to be overwhelmed, right? I actually think this is why so many people, you hear them using this cliche, which is such a cliche that it's become very, very true for so many people when they say, I am spiritual but not religious. I essentially think what people are saying is that the very institutions that were supposed to cultivate and nurture this wide-eyed sense of wonder about life and God's good world have failed at some very, very profound level, essentially becoming so caught up and so deeply, deeply obsessed with defending and analyzing. And yeah, defending, defending, analyzing. That takes thought. That's bad. We've got to stop that stuff. We've got to stop defending and analyzing. He said while defending his position and analyzing theirs. I mean, Rob, if you're against sound doctrine and being right, then stop acting like you're right and stop defending your position and analyzing the position of others. Holding everything up to this predetermined set of criteria that they at some deep, deep, deep level lost the ability to be surprised, to be filled with wonder uh -huh, yeah. and awe. By the way, if you're suffering from insomnia, I think this video would cure you right up. It's interesting, when Jesus talks about what we would say would be criteria or results or proof or whatever you want to call it, what Jesus says is that his followers, his people, the ones who are open to the new thing that God is doing in the world. The one there we go again. The, the ones that are open to the new thing that God is doing in the world. Um, show me the context in that passage. Oh, I'm sorry, that takes analysis. To have said yes to him and trust him. He says you'll know them by their fruit. And fruit comes because you have first tasted. You have tasted of God's love, Joel. <laughs> fruit comes because you tasted? Who knew? I mean, I had no idea that that's how fruit was made. I mean, you got to be careful. Next time you taste a fig, you, you know, you might produce figs. Peace and grace. And it transforms you from the inside out into a new kind of person this is the kind of fruit jesus speaks of perhaps this is why can you show me the that passage again i like to see the context to see if that's what jesus is talking about when he speaks to his disciples he says those two words to them follow me it's as if he's calling each of us to return to that childlike sense of wonder, awe, and anticipation. He reaches deep down there through all those layers of hardness into our heart and says, follow me. He calls us and confronts us with this invitation to leave behind all of the reasons we have to be jaded and bitter and cynical because, let's be honest, what you look for, you will find in this world. He calls us to leave behind all of our reasons. Ah, yes. Notice the, the, the strong anti-doctrinal, anti-thinking theme here. Folding our arms over our chest and becoming one more spectator. And he says, come follow me, move beyond all that. We all want to be successful, but what we really want is wonder and awe. That's our real desire. Jesus invites us to an experience, to a taste of the full, vibrant, dynamic, electric life of God, which he ins invites. What? I mean, what are you talking about? Jesus calls us to repent and to be forgiven of our sins. 
Yeah, have you ever seen those verses? Available to every single one of us right here, right now. So may you rediscover this childlike sense of discovery and anticipation. May you be open to the new thing that God is doing right here. There we go again. Open to the new thing God is doing. What is the new thing that God is doing again? Can you define that clearly for me? Now, and may you be wide-eyed and filled with wonder and awe. So that's the latest from Rob Bell. Um, another argument, strong argument in favor of mandatory drug screening for uh, all seeker-driven and emergent church leaders. So, um, yeah, um, it, it basically that was an apologetic against sound doctrine and thinking, and um, which, by the way, is not what the Bible teaches, um, even though he attempted to quote biblical passages and even mentioned and invoked Jesus, uh, while he was doing that. So, all right. So what do you think? You know, um, <laughs> we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. We'll be right back. I, I need to go detox after listening to that. Okay. Broadcasting from his mother's basement while in a beanbag eating Cheetos. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Welcome to Build-A-God. How can I help you? Hello. I received a Build-A-God certificate for my birthday, so I'm here to build my own deity. Oh, this has got to be so exciting for you. Oh, it really is. Okay, let's get started. The first thing we have to do is determine whether your god is male, female, or unisex. Men are pigs anyway. She has to be female. Great choice. Now we have to select some of the attributes of your goddess. What do you provide? Do you want her to be kind, loving, compassionate, just, angry, righteous, wrathful? The goddess I believe in would only be loving and kind. Perfect. Now, is there any kind of sin that needs tending to by your goddess? Sin? You know, things like lying, cheating, stealing, murder, homosexuality. Well, I definitely want my goddess to be gay-affirming, and sin itself just feels so negative. I'm a good person, and I think my goddess will think everyone else is too. Oh, wonderful! Your goddess is coming along beautifully! Now we have to get to the difficult questions. Does your goddess offer an afterlife? Yes, my goddess would let everyone go to heaven, except for Hitler, Genghis Khan, my 
good-for-nothing ex-boyfriend. Oh, excellent, excellent! Now for the final step. You have to name your goddess. Hmm... I think I'm going to name her Jesus. Oh, wonderful! That's what everyone names their god! From the creators who brought you Bible Pants and Vision Lacks comes the brand new super special awesome comedy album of the 21st century, Max Holiday's Birdcage Theater of the Budgie Cuts. Part 2. We here at Pirate Christian Studios have been hard at work crafting this album for maximum quality and hilarity. You'll cry. <coughs> You'll laugh. <laughs> You'll scream. <coughs> and you'll have uncontrollable flatulence. Just stick to the script, please. So sorry, um... Buy it now while stocks last. They download it. There is no supply which to run out. Oh, so you mean they can just go right onto iTunes and download it? Yes. Like right now? If they want to, yes. Oh. Well, the heck with this commercial. I'm up to buy it right now. Get back here! We're not done yet! Max Holiday's Birdcage Shooter, The Buddy Cuts Part 2. Disapproved of by Heretics Everywhere. Get it before they do. We're back. Uh, warning. The people who are saying that you shouldn't follow those people or listen to people who follow sound doctrine, well, they believe that their doctrine is sound and right. Isn't that weird? You know, it's just something you got to think about. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts, financial contributions, in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you will see two, two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you are signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, next up, I am going to play for you uh, right now the interview that I recorded earlier today with Pastor Daniel Price of Trinity Church of Northwest Arkansas, he and his business partner um, own a, uh, a screen printing company called Redmark, and they donated the uh, literally the T-shirts, the work, the screen printing, the design, everything for the second part of our uh, uh, bake sale to help us get through the lean, mean summer months here at uh, Fighting for the Faith. So uh, without any further ado, here is my interview with Pastor Price. All right, on the line I have Daniel Price, uh, Pastor Price. He is uh, uh, one of the teaching pastors at um, Trinity Church of Northwest Arkansas at, out there in Bentonville. Uh, Pastor Price, Fra- thanks for coming on Fighting for the Faith. Thank you for, uh, for having me, Chris. Okay, so we've we've chatted a few times, more than a few times on Twitter, and uh, we, it seems to be the place where we normally talk, but... Uh, when you heard that we were going to be uh, holding a bake sale this year to help us make uh, ends meet here at Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio, you stepped up and uh, and basically um, donated uh, a, a T-shirt, uh, a whole bunch of T-shirts, screen printing, and all the production work 
so that uh, we can have T-shirts to offer everybody for uh, the second half of our bake sale. Uh, what are you thinking? Uh, <laughs> go ahead. What are you thinking? Oh well, um, well, I, I've been I've been listening to, to Fighting for the Faith for uh, somewhere around around two years now, and was um, a slacker and uh, and didn't ever uh, join the crew or whatever. And as I was uh, I was going to do that, and uh, as a, and right about the time that you uh, had your mother-in-law, you announced that you were doing the bracelets, and um, it occurred to me that that uh, I could perhaps maybe do something different than just uh, than just join the crew that I could help you uh, generate more income. And so um, that's what we decided to do. I talked to my business partner, who was also a listener, and uh, that's what we decided to do. So All right. uh, it's, been, it's been invaluable to me uh, as a, as not only as a, as a Christian, but as a, as a pastor. And so um, I definitely um, just wanted to say thanks and, and keep it on the air. I think it's an, an important uh, ministry to have out there. Well, I want to I want to thank you. The the shirts look fantastic, and uh, and you know my wife and uh, my daughter were, were were just blown away. And uh, I got to tell you, my daughter she ended up picking one of those shirts out for herself. I just I just want you to know that. So, <laughs> but uh, well, I I I've I've, I've, uh, I've made sure that I was uh, we were wearing them here around here uh, before. Uh, okay, good, good. So I, I don't have to feel as bad. <laughs> <laughs> she, she says, "Dad, I love this T-shirt." So, um, we're we're making them available today. In fact, uh, the listeners listening right now, they can go to uh, piratechristianradio.com forward slash bake sale, and they'll be able to see the design. Uh, I sent you guys the artwork. You guys came up with the design. Um, it's got the Pirate Christian Radio logo on the front. Uh, you you even put a little pirate ship on one of the sleeves, and in the back, uh, uh, you know, large large section of the Nicene Creed. So, yes. And uh, it's just it's it's a fantastic uh, design, and and we've you've made uh, two hundred of them for us. So and they they come in gray and white, so you can choose accordingly. And uh, in you know the prices listed there on the website. But I, I again I I wanted to have you on uh, as our way of saying thank you to you. And uh, if any of you listeners out there are in need of screen printing. Um, uh, uh, Pastor Price and his uh, partner, business partner, run a, uh, a screen printing business called Redmark. Tell us a little bit about Redmark and how, if somebody would like to get some T-shirts printed through Redmark, how would they would get a hold of you? Um, yeah, well, we've been uh, we've been in business about six years. Um, uh, so did started doing that before I was uh, involved in ministry in any way. And uh, you can uh, you can get a hold of us. We, oddly enough, we don't have a website, but uh, you can. Uh, email questions or uh, or anything you have to uh, redmarkprinting at yahoo.com or uh, you can call us at 479-381-7866 and uh, be glad to, to talk to you. Actually, just I think from the program yesterday, I've had some um, people hitting me up on Twitter of, about about doing shirts for them and stuff. So you can you can find me there and and, and we could do it through that 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 avenue as well. All right. Well, you know, I, again, th- I, your generosity is uh, is humbling, and I truly, truly am, am thankful for the work that you've done for the T-shirts that we're able to make available. Now, when we came to pick up the T-shirts in Arkansas, we had breakfast with you and members of your church, and um, during breakfast, you you told us some of your stories. You, I, you, you apparently used to be in a, a, a the praise band at a at a seeker type church. Yes, uh, I've been involved in worship uh, pretty much my whole life. Uh, okay, so uh, different style. Okay, so 
you at this one particular church, you I, 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 we don't have to mention the name, but I think it's a rather interesting story that you told that, uh, you know, kind of tell us about, you know, the, the whole creating me a clean heart incident is probably the best way of putting it. I, apparently they wanted that off of the uh, the worship list. Um, how did that well, come? How, how did that come about? Well, um, I was uh, I was a, gu- a guitar player on the on the worship team. And then I um, I would um, I, I could also lead occasionally. And uh, when the other when the head worship leader was out of town or um, on uh, on vacation or just wanted a break, and so uh, it was uh, towards the end of our time there. It was a it was a young sort of uh, seeker driven church, and um, so I was I was leading worship, and I I had to submit uh, my worship set. Uh, to the to the head the head worship leader and then he would approve it and then um, we would go go on from there and um, so I I made out the worship set and submitted it and uh, I had um, you know Psalm 51 was on, was on the worship set okay. and uh, which it wasn't labeled as Psalm 51 it was labeled as created me a clean heart and so he got back with me uh, next day and, and said I've looked at this song. And um, I don't want you to play this song. And I, I was taken back, and I, and I, I said, "Well, you know, why not?" And um, he said, "Well, there's there's some phrasing in there. Um, you know, there's there's a phrase there taken out by Holy Spirit from me, and there's there's a lot there's some stuff in there that's confusing, and and um, and and we just don't want we don't want you singing that." And I then I expressed that I said, "You know, this is this is a song. You know, this is this is a song." And he asked, uh, "Well, which part?" And I said, well, the whole thing, the whole thing's a song. It's word for word. And uh, so then he said, like, well, we'll look, we'll look into it. And, and um, so he went and went to the lead pastor, and they looked at it, and they came back and said, um, you know, we've looked at it, and even though it's a song, um, we we still don't want you doing it. Uh, we don't, we don't want, we don't want to do this song, and uh, we we want to steer away from songs that have too much theology in them because they could be controversial or, or confusing and we don't want to you know we don't want to divide we want to um, we want to have things we don't want to have people I think it's really a matter of having a wor- worship atmosphere generated that doesn't provoke thought you, you're trying to provoke invoke emotion not thought oh and man so, and so I think that like things that are, are, are too thoughtful lyrically are taboo <laughs> that's just <laughs> I mean, you have to laugh because otherwise you're gonna cry. So apparently, there's just way too much theology in Psalm 51 for us to be singing that in church. So you know, we don't want people thinking we just want them having some kind of emotions e- evoked. Well, and uh, and, you, and you certainly want it. The only thing that you could invoke out of uh, Psalm 51, I mean, it's, it's a it's a cry of repentance. Yeah. And, um, when you start. That just falls right in line with the rest of the with the things that are removed from secret driven churches. You certainly don't want songs about repentance saying when you don't preach repentance from the pulpit. It's it's very confusing apparently. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. That, that whole doctrine in biblical theology and you know all that kind of that's really too confusing for us. We just want to have a feeling of the Holy Spirit, but uh, we don't want him actually showing up in word. So wow. Exactly. Exactly. And I think it's. it's it's anti-emotion and it's pro-pro thought. I, I, you know, the way I grew up is, 
I grew up in a very emotional driven. It wasn't necessarily seeker driven, but it was more charismatic. Uh-huh. Um, it's very it's very high on emotion and very low on thought, and so feelings trumps um, thoughtfulness. Right. And, and you don't want to think too deeply. And if something, if you feel one thing and you and you're thinking of another, well, the feeling trumps it because apparently the Holy Spirit works through motion more than mind or logic. It's so um, that 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 it was that a uh, concept to me that was real foreign. So it was the way I had grown up, but it started to that's that's about the time that I started asking all the questions that then led me out of that and actually made me take a hard right towards um, traditional historical Christianity. Right. Um, was, was just the, the fact that it engaged in thoughtfulness, and it was something that I found attractive. Um, I was tired of being led by my emotions and being having to wallow through that mess, and I, I wanted something that I could stand on, something concrete, and um, and so that, that led me more into, uh, into traditional uh, historical Christianity from that point. Wow. Um, and we're, we're thankful for that, uh, that you were now in historic, thoughtful Christianity and, uh, and not being led around by your emotional nose ring. <laughs> you know, man. But uh, I thought that story was fascinating and, and you know, just really you know, encapsulates uh, many of the things that are going wrong in, uh, in evangelicalism today. So thank you, Pastor, f- for your faithfulness in preaching the gospel, and thank you for your wonderful gift to uh, Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio with, with the T-shirts. Yes, uh, if I could say one, one more thing. Sure. Here, I, would, I, I wanted to uh, encourage families out there. I know that you have listeners that are, um, you know, that you, you read emails and things from listeners that are that are in seeker-driven churches, and, and, and they ask you questions, is this a problem, is this a problem? You know, do I, what do I need to do about this? And um, I'd like to encourage them as, as someone that grew up um, – in, in emotional-driven um, type services, um, where where you raise your kids is is very important, and I I wouldn't sacrifice your kids um, because of your lack of discernment. So, so I wouldn't hang around in a church that you're trying to fix, that you're trying to steer into a right direction too long before your kid starts to get the wrong idea yeah. and they have to spend 25 years of their life um, struggling with moralism and, and being defeated and, and trying to fight sin and losing and, and being despaired and, and to the point that they almost give up on Christianity and they could end up there because it's where I was. And if you're going it, to, it's just not, at some point it's not worth it in a time to leave and go find a church that, that preaches the gospel. The problem that you have with the, the younger churches, as, as I'm, a, I'm a young pastor, and the problem with, with all my peers, not, not all of them, but the, the, the great many of the, the seekers and guys, is you have men who week after week take the stage and they mic up, and with every eye on them and with every ear listening, they talk about themselves and they talk about the people in the congregation instead of joining with John the Baptist, who with every eye on him and every ear listening, said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Right. A sin-filled people fill up the churches 
our message has to be, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We must redirect people's eyes on Christ. Um, my, my heart is just broken for the, for the state of the church, and, and uh, that has to be our message last week, this week, every week. You will not, if you will not preach that message, then you need to abandon your post and it's better to have a vacant pulpit than a pulpit that preaches a message other than that. Yeah, and, nope, uh, right. And, and I thank you for your program. Uh, it's been invaluable to me. It, it's, been, it's been good for me to be able to, to keep me um, headed, headed in that direction uh, where, where I can proclaim Christ week after week after week after week. And it's not necessarily the most popular message, but it's the message that's missing the pulpits, especially of the pulpits uh, occupied by, by younger pastors and the next generation of, of pastors who are going to, to lead the, uh, the Church of Christ. Right. Well, great message and good encouragement. And uh, again, thank you very much for uh, faithfully preaching the gospel and again for your generosity to uh, help us uh, get through the lean, mean summer months here at uh, Pirate Christian Radio. I appreciate it, Chris. All right. All right. Thank you. God bless. You too. Good interview, and uh, again, we just are so thankful for uh, his donation to uh, Fighting for the Faith with our T-shirts. If you want to see them, go to piratechristianradio.com forward slash bake sale right now, and you'll be able to order yours. We're selling them for $19.95, and that includes shipping and handling uh, for anywhere within the United States. And, of course, if you are outside of the United States, uh, send me an email, and we'll let you know what the additional cost is for shipping to your neck of the woods. But uh, that story, uh, you know, <laughs> they didn't even want—they did not want to sing Psalm 51 in that seeker-driven church because too much theology could confuse people. Too controversial. Got to get rid of Psalm 51. Wow! If that doesn't tell you something, then I don't know what does. Okay, now at the risk <laughs> of steering the uh, pirate ship too hard uh, one way or another, we're going to have to make an abrupt change here and switch gears and continue with our deconstruction of uh, Gene, uh, Bishop Gene Robinson's keynote, which requires me to do this. This is just crazy to have to go from one thing to the other like this, but uh, hang on, put you, put your crash helmet on, your tinfoil tin pyramid hat and uh, bendy straws and duct tape. Here we go. This is our Bishop Gene Robertson update music. It's the Village People. Man, <laughs> just 
Two days in a row having to deal with the village people. Good night. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's uh, let's continue with our coverage of uh, Gene Robinson's uh, Bishop Gene Robinson of the Episcopal Church, an openly gay uh, homosexual bishop in the Episcopal Church from New Hampshire. Um, and his uh, presentation, keynote to the more light Presbyterians, who really should be renamed the Total Darkness Presbyterians. And we're, again, we're keying in on the rhetorical techniques that he's using. It's, it's, it, you can boil it down and say, this is doublespeak. It's classic doublespeak. And he's going to basically talk about taking the Bible back after creating holy confusion and chaos, which is not a biblical category. And, well, I'll let the bishop talk. Here we go. So let's, let's take the Bible back from those who have taken it hostage. So apparently you've taken the Bible hostage if you believe what the Bible says about the sin of homosexuality. That's completely absurd. That would be like saying, we've got to take the Bible back from those people who believe that Jesus is God and that he died on the cross for the sins of the world. We've got to take the Bible back from them. How can you take it back from them? They're teaching and saying what the Bible says. But he's really not interested in actually taking the Bible back, by the way. He, he really wants to get rid of it. I know that sounds crazy, but continue listening. It is. You know, those are our scriptures, too. No, they're not. You reject what they say. I mean, one of the, one of the great things about the African-American community is that they were given the Bible to keep them docile and to keep them quiet and passive the problem is they read them. <laughs> right. So why don't you read the, all the passages for us that affirm homosexuality? Go ahead. Read them. Show me all those passages. They read their Bibles, right? And they had the audacity to actually believe what they read there. Great. Okay. Show me all of the passages that affirm that God is completely cool and down with and has no problem with homosexuality. Show me those passages. Well, hello, gay and lesbian, bisexual and transgender people. We've read our Bibles, too. And really? And we find ourselves there. Where do you find yourself there again? And, and it is astounding when you find yourself there. Yeah, that would be astounding. Where, again, did you find yourself, you know, there? So the next time someone wants to argue one of those seven deadly verses with you... Ah, argue the seven deadly verses. and I mean all of those passages that condemn homosexuality. Listen to this. About homosexuality? I want you to interrupt them in a nice sort of way and tell them that you want to talk about a passage from scripture. Okay, now watch this technique. Okay? This is not a this is not a biblical argument for homosexuality, but watch what he does here. Cuz this is a technique I've seen used by multiple heretical sects. We continue. The one in John's Gospel, you know, most of John's Gospel is set at the at the last supper, the last words that Jesus spoke to his disciples. And he says this really astounding thing. He says, there is much that I would teach you, but you cannot bear it right now. So I will send the Holy Spirit who will lead you into all truth. 
Yeah, I, I take him to mean, uh, uh, you know, for... Uh, for a bunch of, of um, rather dull, uh, not the sharpest knife in the drawer, uh, uneducated, rough fishermen, you haven't done too badly. Really. In fact, so in other words, Jesus was already, I mean, he was, he was prepared to teach the disciples about affirming and celebrating homosexual marriage. But see, they weren't ready for that then. And so he was going to send the spirit who would lead them into all truth. And the, the spirit would eventually reveal that God is, is all down with homosexuality, that he makes male and female and homosexual and lesbians and transgenders, and all of them are equally blessed in God's eyes. See, God, Jesus was going to teach them that, but they weren't ready for it. And so that's why it's not in the Bible. Ah, I see. Well, let's, I mean, let's try this argument out with a, well, with a different idea. Okay, let's come up with something that well, maybe somebody believes or maybe doesn't believe. But here's the deal. I believe that Jesus was trying to tell us about the importance of intermarriage with extraterrestrial life. Okay, and that he was going to teach the disciples that, but they weren't ready for that. And so, um, you know... He, Jesus decided he was going to send the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit would enlighten our hearts and tell us of the importance of intermarrying with extraterrestrials. Okay? Now, I have this on good authority, too, by the way. Found this out. I mean, I, when I had um, lunch the other day with Elvis Presley, you didn't know that he was still alive, did you? Elvis Presley, he's still alive. In fact, when I had lunch with him the other day, he told me that on the mothership, yeah, it's true that uh, that humans and extraterrestrials, they intermarry all the time and that Jesus is completely down with that. Yeah. You see, the Mormons, they say, you know, that Jesus was going to tell us all about the importance of polygamy and becoming gods and, and, and that God, our heavenly father, father Elohim, how he lives on planet Kolob. Okay, but Jesus was going to tell us all that, but, well, he didn't get a chance because, well, the disciples just weren't ready, I mean, for that teaching yet. And so he was, he had to send the spirit to teach us about that important doctrine. You see how this works? I mean, you could basically just take this argument and assert any crazy doctrine that you want to assert that isn't taught in the Bible. But see, here's the deal. Scripture says God cannot lie. This is what the scriptures say. God cannot lie. And God has already revealed that homosexuality is an abomination. It's a sin. And those who continue and persist in it and practice it will not inherit the kingdom of God. That it's unnatural, that it's a perversion, and that it's a judgment from God. Right? This is what God has already said. So the chances of Jesus basically saying, uh, listen, I was going to tell you guys that God's okay with this now. But you weren't ready, so I have to send the Spirit to teach you? Um, yeah, this doesn't hold up to biblical scrutiny. And don't you remember he said that he was going to take the Bible back from people? Right? And that the, the Bible is their scriptures too? But see, notice this argument. This isn't an argument for what the scriptures say. This is an argument for erasing what the scriptures say and say, well, listen, the Spirit is leading us to to embrace homosexuality because that's what Jesus would have taught the disciples, but they weren't ready. I'm kind of proud of you. But don't you for a minute think that God is done with you 
for those who will come after you. Because there is so much that I would teach you, but really, you, you and your culture and your experience could, cannot bear it right now. So look for the Holy Spirit to lead you into all truth. Does right. See, th those disciples, they just weren't ready for the, 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 the bigger teaching on homosexuality. So the Holy Spirit is leading. So look where the Holy Spirit is leading you on this one. Anyone doubt that, that we were led by the Holy Spirit to... Uh, to turn our backs on defending slavery by using scripture was not a leading of the Holy Spirit? The denigration and subjugation of women? Is it not the Holy Spirit that is leading us to a fuller understanding of the gifts and, and integrities and, and experiences of women? And I would say that the Holy Spirit is leading us to recognize gay and lesbian, bisexual, and transgender people. That's flat out blasphemy. And I mean, literally, that is like the absolute clinical definition of blasphemy. So God, the Holy Spirit, is leading us to embrace gay and lesbian, bisexual, transgendered unions, and all that kind of stuff. That's blasphemy. Because God, the Holy Spirit, has already revealed that that is an abomination. Wow. So he's not arguing for the, what the scripture says. He's arguing for his experience of what he believes is the guiding of the Holy Spirit now. Nowhere in the Bible is, gay, is homosexual marriage affirmed. In fact, it's always condemned. Not even marriage. I mean, just the union itself. The behavior itself is flat out condemned as an abomination. But no, no, we've got we've got a fuller revelation now. This is a guiding of the Holy Spirit, pure subjectivity, contrary to everything written in God's Word. Yet He said He was taking the Bible back. Weird. There is more that I would teach you, but you cannot bear it right now. And we should see this as a sign of a living God. We don't worship a God who stopped revealing God's self at the end of the first century when the canon of Scripture was closed. No, you worship a God that contradicts himself, who says one thing one era and then says another thing in the other era. Hmm, weird God. I mean, if you push it to its logical conclusion, it's as if God has said everything God needed to say to us by the end of the first century, you know, wished us well and, I don't know, went to the Bahamas. <laughs> You know, hope that goes okay for you. Well, I'm sure that if God has been talking since the uh, close of the New Testament canon, uh, where, where can we find all of these other add-ons to our Bible that we need to be reading? Where, where can we find that? I mean, the only thing you're basically saying is God the Holy Spirit led you to embrace homosexuality. Um, in practice, as well as theory, in in your case, uh, Bishop Robinson. But again, so God's been talking. Where where do we? Where am I supposed to go to find all this extra biblical revelation that God has been speaking since the close of the canon? Huh? Where is it? Now, in in this one respect, the Methodists got it right. God is still speaking. God is still speaking. What's he saying? Where can I go to read the words that God has been speaking? God love you if you're a Methodist. 
we have any of those in the air? Oh, great. Good. A couple of moles from the Methodist Church. So I, I, I think we need to take our scriptures back. They belong to us as well. But you're not arguing for the scriptures. You're arguing against what the scripture says. Remember the seven deadly passages against homosexuality? You've rejected that. So why would you want the Bible back? You're not arguing for the Bible. You're arguing against it. And you're arguing for extra-biblical revelation that's written nowhere. Just claiming that God the Holy Spirit's at work in your movement. And we need to find our stories in them. The other thing that we need to do in this um, holy movement of ours is that we need to understand that we are about something much larger than the fight for the acceptance of gay and lesbian, bisexual, and transgender people. And uh, th I could talk for a very long time, and we need to talk about this for a very long time. What I actually think is going on here is the beginning, just the very beginning of the end of patriarchy. So we're going to get rid of the order that God created. We're going to get rid of patriarchy. Now, okay. So what are we going to replace it with? Matriarchy? Homosexuality-archy? What are we going to replace it with? That's why both the Bible and culture today is driven nuts about two men together and oh are there so the bible and culture today is driven nuts by two men together notice he just said the bible is against two men being together yet he says that he's for the yeah lesbians you know it's it's about the sin of treating your male privilege in a way that seems to be turning your back on it and allowing yourself to be treated like a woman. Ugh, who would want that? Right. It's why women understand this fight so much more easily and well and deeply than many men, because they know what it's like to be on the receiving end of this kind of discrimination. And so what we really need to be talking about is not so much homophobia, but heterosexism. Mm, yeah, that terrible sin of heterosexism. Wow, it, I mean, seriously, I mean, God the Holy Spirit's on his side, right? God the Holy Spirit's still speaking. God, Jesus would have revealed to the apostles, you know, that they need to affirm homosexuality, but they weren't ready for that yet. But now we're ready for it, and so he's on the side of God, and, well, yeah, now you, you've got the sin of heterosexism. Wow. And uh, let's remember what an ism is. An ism is prejudice plus power. You know this. You, you can be prejudiced. He said from the position of power known as bishop. Just against anything, but it's not an ism. Notice he's prejudiced against heterosexuality and he has power. Wouldn't he be guilty of homosexualism? Unless you have the power to put that prejudice into place in the culture, in the systems that, that serve us, in our churches, in all of our institutions. So if it's better to be white than to be a person of color, then you set the system up to benefit white people at the expense of those of color.
and you have sexism. If it's better to be male than to be female, you set the system up. So it rewards, and it does continue to reward men at the expense of women. And the sin we are fighting in this movement is the notion that it is better to be heterosexual than it is to be homosexual, and we set the system up. Yeah, so it's a sin to believe that homosexuality is a sin. And so they're reworking the system so that it's a sin to oppose homosexuality and call it what the Bible calls it, an abomination, unnatural, a sin. A sin that will mean that you will not inherit the kingdom of God unless you're brought to repentance and faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of this sin. Frightening days that we live in, folks. Frightening days that we live in where evil is called good and good is called evil. Black is white, white is black. Up is down, down is up. Everything's backwards, upside down, inside out. Now, normally we expect this from the world. But it's important to note that Bishop Gene Robinson is an ecclesiastical leader who holds an ecclesiastical office. This nonsense is taking place and being discussed within the visible church, from within offices of power within the visible church. I think it is safe to say that the visible church is apostate, is at war with God, and is warring against God, his word, what he's revealed. And basically, these are people who are trying to bring in licentiousness and their own perversion and calling it godly and blaming it on God the Holy Spirit. Absolutely, breathtakingly evil is what this really is. All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me, you can. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. You can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Sermon review on the other side of the break. You don't want to miss it. Well, you might want to, but I'm kidding. Yeah, we'll be right back. need to rethink Christianity, we need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... Listening to Byron Christian Radio. If everybody had a news across the USA, then everybody'd be served like California. You'd see them wearing their baggies, Warachi sandals too, a bushy, bushy bond here, serving USA. Have you purchased your airline tickets for your summer getaway yet? If not, don't pay more for your airfare, hotel room, or rental car than you need to. Long-time Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheapo Air is your one-stop shop for all of your travel needs. And 
we've got a special promo code for you to use at Cheapo Air to save an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, then click on the web banner and book your travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That website address, again, is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. And thank you for your support. Cowabunga. Okay, we're back. Hour number two. We're well into it here at Fighting for the Faith. Sermon review time. This is the first sermon I've reviewed from this guy. Ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's um, sermon comes to us via um, Substance Church. Uh, some substance is a band. Maybe this substance should be. Substance Church in uh, Fridley, Minnesota. Looks like they're a multi-site in the greater uh, Twin Cities area up there in Minnesota. The uh, guy presenting is uh, by the... And his name is Mark Mellon. And the name of... This lecture topic, I don't know, it's called Spark Being a Catalyst. So the name of the sermon series is Spark, and this is about being a catalyst, which kind of begs the question, where in the Bible does it tell us that we need to be catalysts? And I'm not talking about cows and bulls and, you know, cattle driving, things like that apparently, you know, a catalyst for something else. So we're going to try to tease this thing apart, but already we got a problem because I don't see anywhere in scripture where we're told that we need to be catalysts. So let me kill the music here without any further ado. Here is Mark Mellon and his attempt at a sermon entitled, um, being a catalyst. And you're going to notice that he starts off with pretty much trying to be a stand-up comedian. Here we go. So this is the first part of the sermon. It's This is the comedy routine section where he tries his hand at open mic night. If you're, if you're here today at any of our campuses or maybe watching online on the couch in your underwear, can I hear you make some noise, please? So if you're a blogger, yeah, and you're watching on your mom's couch in the basement in your underwear, yeah. Guys, I'm excited. We are in the middle of this series called Spark, and it's all about igniting a movement. And today I want to talk about being a catalyst. Igniting a movement. We're not told to do that. By the way, the church is not a movement. It's an institution. Big difference between the two. Okay, Communism is a movement. Fascism is a movement. Um, the church, institution, big difference. Everyone say be a catalyst. 
at all our campuses say, be a catalyst. Why would I say that? You haven't even opened the Bible. You, if you want me to say it, you have to actually prove from the Bible that this is what God wants me to do. Because when you ascend to the pulpit or stage in this particular case, you're supposedly telling me what God wants me to be or do or say or whatever, right? So um, you haven't proven to me anything at this point regarding God's desire or will for me to be a catalyst. So I'm not going to say it. I believe you said it. <laughs> you know, we define being a catalyst as a, a substance that's an, an accelerant to the transformation of a person's life. An accelerant. Wouldn't that be something that an accelerant is used like when you're creating fire or, you know, a flame or something. Use an accelerant to get the fire going. Um, I'm glad that's how you define it. But again, my question is, where is this taught in the Bible? It's a substance that's an accelerant to the transformation of something. You know, in America, there's a lot of things uh, that, that people, a lot of people have been catalysts for a lot of different things. Some good, some bad. You ever read a warning label before? Like on, in a microwave oven, if you were to look in their manual, it actually says warning not to be used for drying pets. <laughs> We got to put a stop to this. These people don't know how a microwave oven works. You know, or uh, on the iPod shuffle, if you were to ever go buy the iPod shuffle, it actually has a warning on there that says, warning, do not eat the iPod shuffle. (laughs) Some dude walks out of Best Buy and he's like, oh, it looks so good. (laughs) And before that guy got caught, we were all able to enjoy the delicious colors of the iPod shuffle. You know, if you pick up a a bag of nuts, you might find a warning on there that says, warning contains nuts. Somebody didn't know he picked up a bag of nuts. There's even a blanket made in Taiwan that has a warning label on it that says, warning not to be used for protection from a tornado. Like some dude in Oklahoma, he's like, honey, there's a tornado coming quick. Get the blanket. Who was that guy? My question is, who are you? I mean, serious. I mean, did you try these jokes out at open mic night at the improv? Because had you done that, you would have realized you don't have what it takes to deliver comedy. By the way, comedy takes timing. I just want everybody to know that. Um, So um, why are you trying to do a stand-up comedy routine? Your job during the sermon is to preach the word. The preaching time is a holy and sacred time when we hear and learn God's word. Why did you start off with this lame, absolutely lame stand-up comedy routine? You know, one of the biggest catalysts in my life was becoming a father. And talk about something that needs a warning label, the labor process. I mean, warning could cause PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. Seriously, I still have flashbacks of the, of the day my wife's water broke and, and we as a young, vibrant couple ran into the hospital and, and we ran into the hospital room that should have been labeled war zone. I didn't know how ill-equipped I was for what the next 36 hours was going to be all about. You know, my wife wanted to have a natural labor, so they got her in there and she's crawling on her hands and knees. They got her jumping on down a, bon- a ball. They got her doing lunges in the middle of her contractions, just like, Argh! at some point I ripped my shirt open, put on war paint and was like, honey, we're going to take the hill. After 24 hours of this, I-, I looked at her and I said, I'm declaring you legally insane. And I'm, and uh, nurse, go ahead and get an epidural. 
And so an epidural is just an extensive, hardcore painkiller. And so they give her the epidural, and for the next 12 hours, she's, she's in full-on labor, but she can't feel a lot of it. And the doctor comes in and says, okay, we got to do a C-section. And they haul us into the operating room. And they put a little blue screen so I can't see, but I'm sitting there talking to my wife. And the doctor leans over and goes, hey, do you want to watch? No. I, I got years of counseling already laid out because of this whole thing, man. They hand me my son, Connor, and I hold him in my arms and he looks at me and he goes, Meh. and this overwhelming feeling of responsibility comes on me. And I, and I know that this kid is going to look at me someday when he's 18 and he's going to say, dad, I'm doing this because of you. And it's going to be like either a lifetime of crime or a full-time ministry. <laughs> I'm very black and white. There was really nothing in between there. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we're all selfish people. We're all really selfish people. I'm a, and it's easy to be selfish when you're single. You know, you can be all about your goals and your dreams. And Don't you think it's completely selfish of you to get up during the sermon and do a stand-up comedy routine at the beginning of it? That's like the ultimate epitome of selfishness. Your job is to preach the word right now. And even when you're a young married, you can be all about your goals and dreams. But now that I had a son, I knew that my life had to be about him, that I had to pour into him, but my heart didn't fully change. You know, it was easy to become a father, but it wasn't easy to become a dad. And I remember praying every night, God, would you make my heart's desire to be just to come home and pour into my son? And there was this one night when he was about six months old, I was rocking him to sleep, you know, singing him the old fashioned lullabies like, you're my wonder wall. The classics. And this feeling of peace came over me. And I knew that that's what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. I wanted to raise a kid that was going to love God. And, and somewhere along the way, God changed my heart. My son became a catalyst in the transformation in the way I saw the world. If you guys have your Bibles with you, why don't you go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 22. 19 through 20. We're going to look at a story commonly called the Last Supper. Here Jesus is at the uh, end of his ministry, and he's about to face the cross, and not a lot of people know this. Hey, now listen to what he does with this Monday Thursday text, okay? Last Supper, this is Passover. All of the symbols of the Passover, the blood over the door, the destroyer passing over, that all now falls on Jesus because Jesus has taken all of this up. So, I mean, if you're going to preach this text, you are literally just one breath away from preaching the biblical gospel of Christ crucified for your sins, okay? Raised again on the third day for your justification. Watch what he does with this. Talk about missing the point. But at the time, they don't know this. Only Jesus knows that he's going to go to the cross. But like a death row inmate, he wants to have a last meal with his disciples. So he says, hey, let's have Passover together. Why don't you two go into town? and you'll Hey, let's have Passover together. Hey, I got an idea. You know, I'm dying tomorrow. You know, I'd like my last meal to be a steak, a little bit of lamb, and, uh, you know, and some ice cream. I see a guy with a bucket of water, and you tell him that your master needs a room. And so like two young Jedis, they walk into town and they're like, master, master needs a room. And the guy goes and gets a room. He was just waving his hands. You know, they did. They apparently the disciples used the Jedi mind trick on the guy who owned the upper room. Good night. They all sit around and they have this epic meal together where Jesus, he takes this bread 
and, and foreshadowing what was going to happen on the cross, he breaks it and he says, this is my body broken for you. Mm-hmm. There's the gospel right there. Let's see if he notices it. Do this in remembrance of me. And then he hands him a, a cup of wine and he says, this is my blood shed for you. There's the gospel again, right there. That's the gospel. Okay. Let's see what he does with this. Do this in remembrance of me. Then I think that disciples were ill-equipped for what the next 36 hours meant for them. Meant for them? Huh? As Jesus was going to be betrayed, mocked, beaten, and die on a cross to be the greatest catalyst in human history. Where he... Uh... So Jesus died on the cross to be the greatest catalyst in human history. There isn't a single biblical text that even says anything remotely like it. What on earth did you do with the gospel there, dude? Um, it was right there. It was on your lips. This is my body broken for you. This take drink. This is my blood shed for you, right? I mean, there's the gospel. You might want to key in on that because that's the message that has the power to raise somebody from the dead. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. There's the gospel. It's all about Jesus. And now you switch to the disciples and said, you know, they were well ill-equipped for what the next 36 hours would, quote, mean to them. Ugh. The next 36 hours meant their salvation even though it was the darkest experience of their life, and Peter denied Christ three times, which made him worthy of hell, because Jesus makes it clear, you deny me before men, I will deny you before the Father. Okay? But going into his sin, Jesus tells Peter, I've prayed for you, that your faith won't fail, right? He was going to transform humanity, and now two billion people claim allegiance to this Christ, saying he's changed our lives. He's changed our lives. Um, boy, that's a different gospel. Um, folks, the gospel message is not the gospel of a transformed or changed life. That is the fruit of the gospel, but that's not the gospel. The gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ, the spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, bled and died in your place. He was pierced for your transgressions, bruised for your iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. He was crucified for your sins and died and was buried and was raised again bodily from the grave on the third day. That's the gospel. Okay? When you are brought to repentance and faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, your life does change. Because a Christian can't help but do good works because that's what a Christian does. Because a Christian is a new creation in Christ. Right? You do good works because of who and what you are. Before you were dead in trespasses and sins. Now you are alive in Christ. Your life does change. But that's the effect of the gospel. It is not the gospel. And to pitch the effect without the gospel means that you are literally cutting people off from the ability to truly be sanctified 
forgiven, born again, and renewed. Because it's the gospel that brings us faith and repentance. And as Christians, I think we minimize what happened on the cross. I'm just going to step out on a limb here, guys. But I think we say, oh, Jesus died on the cross so that we can do the do's and don'ts of Christianity. So that we can... Jesus died on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins. I don't know a single person who would say, oh, yeah, Jesus died on the cross to give us do's and don'ts. He died on the cross because we don't do the do's and we do the don'ts. That's why he had to die. And live better lives. But Paul says it's some, something much deeper than that. In uh, Ephesians 2, 4, and 5, Paul says that we were dead in our sin. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And Christ raised us from life. Right. Who's the we there? How did he do it? Yeah. That when he died on the cross, something in the spiritual realm broke. That It was sort of like a, uh, like a BC, apo- uh, you know, zombie apocalypse where Jesus is the antidote and, and saves humanity. You know, he's... Uh, okay swoops in and saves humanity and 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 since then there's been a yeah um you're forgetting the fact that we need to preach repentance and faith and trust in christ for the forgiveness of sins call on our lives to be a catalyst jesus's last message to us is hey go forth and make disciples of all nations yeah i've transformed your life now go forth and transform other people's lives be an ex No, I'm sorry. That's flat out eisegesis. That is not even a remotely a correct contextualization of that passage. Accelerant for the transformation of people's lives. So before we go any further, here's what I want to do. I want to examine where God's asking us to be a catalyst. When we do this, why don't you go ahead and bow your heads, close your eyes. At all our campuses, bow your heads, close your eyes. Between you and God, just ask God, hey, where are you asking me to be a catalyst, God? Really? Maybe it's in your family. You're going to be the first person in your family to own a home, break the cycle of poverty. That has nothing to do with the gospel. So God's calling you to own a home and break the cycle of poverty? Really? Break the cycle of abuse, addiction, have a godly marriage. And that's going to affect generations beyond you, beside you, and behind you. Maybe you're, you're in school and God's calling you to be a catalyst in your school and then transform people there. Or maybe you're in the business sector and God's calling you to be a catalyst in your workplace. Or What does the word transform mean in these sentences? What are you talking about? Maybe you're a young couple with kids and you can just imagine your kids saying to you, Mom, Dad, would you be a catalyst in my life? Maybe you're an empty nester and God's saying to you, Hey, I want you to be a catalyst right here in this church. Okay, fine. Um, What does that mean? What does it look like? Or maybe you're here today and you're new to this whole Jesus thing and today God wants to be a catalyst in your life. For what? What's he going to catalyze? Why don't you go ahead and open your eyes. Let's keep that in mind as we talk. You know, Jesus... You know, it used to be you would end a prayer in Jesus' name. He goes to the Garden of Gethsemane after this meal, and he's like, God, I don't really want to go to the cross. But it says in Hebrews 12, 2, that for the joy set before him, he endured the shame and, 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 and the scorn of the cross. So the reason why I went to the cross was to be a catalyst for life change. 
for the joy set before him. But we hesitate. Sometimes we hesitate being the catalyst that God's called us to be. See, Jesus had joy going to the cross and being the world's greatest catalyst. I mean, so why are you hesitating to be a catalyst? This is ridiculous. Being the accelerant to the transformation of other people's lives. And I want to talk about that for a minute. Why do we hesitate? You know, I've been asking that question to myself. Why do we hesitate? And, and there's a couple. I don't even know what you're talking about. Maybe the reason I'm hesitating is because I don't even see this as a clear biblical teaching. Reasons I came up with, they're not all the reasons, but there are a couple reasons. And the first reason, if you're taking notes, you can write this down. It's we don't want to look foolish. We don't want to look foolish. You know, we don't want to look like a fool. You ever do something foolish? I do uh, foolish things all the time. When I was a kid, uh, me and my wife grew up together, right? And I always had the hots for her. She was a cutie, even when we were little kids. And so now we're engaging in another story from Mark Mellon's life. Okay. And I'd always try to impress her by challenging her brother to MMA fights, you know, like mixed martial arts, UFC fights in the front yard, in the backyard, so I could show her how tough I was, win her heart. Except for her brother was two years older than me, a foot taller than me, and a black belt in karate. (laughs) Me? I was 1992's most improved green belt. (laughs) That's right. One step above white belt. One step above, well, no belt at all. So one day, she walks by, and, and we're out in the front yard, and I'm like, Aaron, boom, and I push him. Come on, let's go. We start grappling in the front yard, and, you know, I think I got him, and then all of a sudden, he, bent, he, he gets me and shoves my face right into the grass, and he gets me into this submission hold. Uh, I don't know if you guys have ever heard of it. It's not like the arm bar or the choke hold. It's a, it's a, it's a thing called the wedgie. <laughs> Some people call it the snuggie. And there's forms of it. There's like the wedgie, the super wedgie, the atomic wedgie. So here I am buried in, and I feel like he's putting on the wedgie move. And, and I can hear it ripping. just. And he lifts his fist high in the sky in mid-afternoon for all the neighborhood to see my fruit of the looms. And I lift my face in shame from the grass to see the woman of my dreams looking at me. Such a foolish little boy. I don't know why she had an accent from Ireland, but. (laughs) Sometimes we just do things that are foolish. But sometimes you got to look like a fool to to be a catalyst. Sometimes you got to not be afraid to look a little bit foolish. There was a video I came across just a, a few years ago of a guy who was dancing like a fool at this festival, just looking like an idiot for like 10 minutes. And all of a sudden, people start catching on, and it transforms the whole festival. Why don't you guys check this out? Okay, there's some guy just wearing a pair of shorts, no shirt, and he's on a hillside doing some weird funky dance. And the people around him are looking at him going like, whoa, and wait, somebody's just joined him. And now they're both doing weird dance. Oh, look, there's four more people. Then there's ten people now doing the whole bunch of people are now joining in doing this weird dance. Wow, he's such a catalyst. Here's more people. And now a whole crowd of people is coming to join in and do this weird, bizarre dance. 
more people and more it's a it's practically a gaggle now a crowd he's transforming the world through his crazy foolish dance Sometimes you got to dance like a fool to start a movement. Sometimes you got to look like an idiot to be a catalyst. I don't want to start a movement. I don't see the need for it. Fascism is a movement. Um, communism is a movement. The church is an institution. I need to go to a church where I'm hearing Christ and him crucified for my sins. Where I'm hearing God's word preached from a man who holds an office within the institution of the church, the pastoral office, not a movement. And a transformation to something, a transformation in a person's life. You know, Jesus didn't have a problem looking foolish. He didn't have a problem looking foolish at all. In fact, in John chapter 6. So in John chapter 6, Jesus did the funky dance, just like that guy from that viral video, right? 53 through 56 here, Jesus is at the height of his ministry. He's just fed the 5,000, this miracle he works, and he's got hundreds of disciples at this point. He looks at them, foreshadowing what was going to happen at the cross, foreshadowing the greatest catalyst in human history. He says, to follow me, you got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And they looked at him like, man, you are a fool. You're crazy. Um, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can believe it? Hundreds of them took off. Right, they left. Jesus' church shrinkage sermon. That's what that's called there in John chapter 6. At the end, of the, the disciples are left, and Jesus looks at them and says, Are you two going to leave? And Peter, speaking for them, says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. That's not Jesus looking or being willing to be foolish. That's Jesus willing to speak the truth, even when the truth is hard to believe. And all that was left was his 12 disciples that we hear about. And he says, are you going to leave me too? And they say, where am I going to go? When I first became a Christian, I was having dinner with a, a mentor. Of Another story from Mark Mellon's life. Mine. Uh, he was a very, very successful businessman and uh, my, one of my friend's fathers. And he, for some reason, he, had, he believed in me. He thought that I had a lot of potential in my life. And we're sitting down having dinner. And he goes, well, Mark, now that you've had this spiritual awakening, what do you want to do with your life? What do you, what, what's your plans? And I said, well, I think I want to be a pastor. And he looked at me and he said, you are a fool. That would be a waste of your life. What a waste of your gifts and talents. Well, it wouldn't be if you'd actually preach the word. Paul talks about this. In 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the message of the cross is foolishness. Sometimes, yeah. So why don't you preach it then? Why don't you show us what a fool you are by preaching it instead of making allusions to it? To be a catalyst for Christ, we look like a fool to the world. One of my jobs here is actually to work with church planters. So I, I help church planters be successful. And there's a church planter I met a few years ago. Great guy. And I, I sat down with him and we had lunch. And I said, hey, tell me your story. Tell me how you ended up planting your church. He said he had a young family, very successful job. And he felt like God had called him to go plant a church. He thought it was a bit crazy and a bit foolish for him to do it. So he started talking to some of his mentors. And one of his mentors down in Mexico sat him down and said, this is economic suicide. It would be absolutely foolish for you to do this. 
But he really felt like it was God. He felt like God had called him to be a catalyst, an accelerant for the transformation of the city that he was calling him to. And so he he packed everything up. He moved to that city, planted that church, and they launched with like 300 people day one. I mean, God was in it. And that church grew and grew and grew over the next six months. Notice that the, the, the true sign that God was in it is the numbers. Huh. Why is it that all of these guys in the seeker-driven movement who claim that God is the one behind all of their catalytic growth, when I review their sermons, they're not preaching the word, nor are they preaching the gospel correctly? Why would I believe that God is in it? I don't care if 10,000 people showed up on day one. That's no proof that God's in it. It just might mean that the guy's a good marketer. The proof of, of whether or not God is in it is whether or not the gospel is preached and sinners are brought to repentance and faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. That's the sign that God's in it. And God might be in a church where there's only 10 people. Whereas he was not present or not involved in a church with catalytic growth and thousands of people showing up week after week. The, the difference is whether or not... God's word is rightly taught, the gospel is correctly preached, and sinners are brought to repentant faith and trust in Christ. That's the difference. doesn't matter how many people are showing up, but according to this guy, well, God's really in it if there's big numbers. That doesn't prove anything. It's right down to 40 people. And as he was sitting there, he said, Mark, I just, I felt like a fool. I totally missed God's call. But by the time we were meeting, God had started moving in his church, and it started growing. And in fact, that year, it doubled in size. I said, obviously, God, God was in this. You must be pretty excited. And he goes, Mark, I don't care that my church doubled in size. What I really want to know is, are we transforming people's lives? Hmm. I want to know if we're transforming people's lives. Listen, um, Alcoholics Anonymous transforms people's lives. Um, you know, if you've ever seen uh, Dr. Drew and his, you know, rehab you know, programs, Dr. Drew transforms people's lives. Um, there's a whole bunch of 12 step programs out there that transform people's lives. Mormonism transforms people's lives. There's uh, people who claim that their lives have been transformed by becoming Muslims or Buddhists or Hare Krishnas. Their lives have been transformed. That's not the measure of truth. Nor is that what Christians are called to do. Christians are called to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name, baptizing and teaching all that Christ has commanded. Right? So, I'm sorry, but transformed lives is the wrong metric. It really, truly is. Not only that, it's a metric that because it is so vague as to what it means is capable of hiding and masking pernicious error and heresy. I mean, Rob Bell, the arch heretic of postmodernism has trans, you know, his message has transformed people yet. He's a heretic. The message of Brian McLaren, the arch heretic. Well, it's brought, it's brought about life transformation in some people's lives. And yet he doesn't teach the truth. I'm sorry, but this is this is upside down, backwards, inside out, and completely wrong. Preach the gospel.
Leave it to the Holy Spirit to transform people's lives. The question as to whether or not God is involved is whether or not you're preaching God's word correctly and rightly handling the word of truth. What a shocking way to measure your church's success. Are you a catalyst? Are you an accelerant in the transformation of a person's life? About a year and a half ago, I came across a YouTube video of a guy who got saved in this guy's church. Why don't you check this out? Okay, now here comes a life story. Listen carefully to the role Jesus plays and what this guy's understanding of Jesus is. Hey, everybody. Uh, my name is Robert Reese. I am from Plano, Texas, uh, originally from New York City. Grew up in uh, the projects, uh, not the nicest of neighborhoods. I've seen shootings. I've uh, witnessed uh, cars blown up in front of me. I've seen people assaulted right in front of my apartment building. And I wanted to share my story of coming to the Lord with, uh, with everybody. I am, uh, two years ago uh, or so, I was uh, very, very atheist. Um, and one day, uh, I realized everything that was missing from my life. I was losing my wife. Uh, I was an unfaithful husband. I was going to lose my children. Uh, I was losing my home. And one day, I needed a, a, a desperate cry for help. I, I, I cried out to the Lord. I said, Lord, if you're really there, please reach down and help me because I am in need. And he more than provided. He One day I received an anonymous email. That anonymous email said, hey, check out this church. Uh, they played hip hop. They played rock right up my alley. And I attended. They accepted any money. The email I received was from bunch of letters, numbers, number signs, exclamation marks at hotmail.com. So it actually had no sender. It was a piece of spam mail that I read. And this was the same week that I had cried out to the Lord to show me that he was there. I attended church that week called Substance Church uh, in Minnesota. They had an incredible service the day that I went. Uh, I was a drug addict. I was uh, homeless at the time. I was bouncing from place to place, and the sermon spoke immediately to me. Thanks to Pastor Peter Haas, H-A-A-S, I have to give him credit for this. His sermon that day spoke directly to me, and I couldn't do anything other than acknowledge the fact that the Lord was present, that he was good, and that he was going to save me from my troubles. Within three months' time, I had moved out of Minnesota. Uh, from from Minnesota to Texas without a job, I got... So God's going to save him from his troubles. What if he didn't get a job? Does God promise Christians a job? Here on a, on a couple of tanks of gas, by the time I arrived to my destination, I puttered, uh, for lack of a better term, into my parking spot where I had no more gas left, had no more money left, and I was staying with my brother-in-law. Within the first three months of me moving to Texas from Minnesota, not only did I get a job, not only was I able to save my marriage uh, as well as my kids, but I was able to move them down here and start a brand new life. Now I have a great income. 
I have a great family who loves me and who loves the Lord. And it's all because Jesus heard my cry for help and reached down and grabbed me. Okay, want to be careful here. I'm not saying that Jesus didn't reach down and grab him. And I'm not saying that Jesus didn't answer his prayer. The issue here is what's missing in all of this? I mean, basically, Jesus is being turned into an apple god. If you pray to him, he's going to give you a job. He's going to save your marriage. He's going, you know, what about everybody else who's who, do, who doesn't get the job, continues to live on unemployment, loses his family, right? Well, Jesus didn't answer his prayer. Why? Must have done something wrong, right? Jesus doesn't promise you a job. He promises you to forgive your sins. Jesus doesn't promise that your marriage is going to be saved, but he promises to save you from the wrath of God by his shed blood on the cross. I'm not hearing about the shed blood of Christ on the cross. Every time the gospel gets dangerously close to being preached from Substance Church, it's not preached at all. This sounds like a light version of, of the prosperity heresy. Church, it's been my honor to uh, dance like a fool with a guy dancing like a fool, with a whole bunch of people dancing like fools so that people like Robert can know Christ. What does he know about Christ? Based on this sermon, I would say probably not much. The uh, second reason why we hesitate to be a catalyst is we forget. You can write that down if you're taking notes. We forget. You know, you forget why God gave you that job or what it was like to first get married to your wife or why God gave you that house or your kids or put you in this church or brought you to this city. You forget. You guys forget things. I forget things all the time. First time I ever did communion, it was at Northwestern. 900 people in the crowd, and the Spirit of God was thick. People were crying. God was moving in big ways. I was super excited, right? And I step on stage to tell everybody to take the elements, and I look out to the crowd, and I go, you can now take the, I forgot what it was called, just totally forgot. I, uh, you know, the elements, blood and body of Christ, the, the wine and bread would have been nice, but I got nothing. So I'm, I'm looking out to the crowd, and, I, and there's this moment where I have this dramatic pause, and and you can you can feel the anticipation raising in the crowd, like what is he going to say, and my anxiety raising as I'm like, what am I going to say? Say, <laughs> so you can now take the. The juice and cracker. You could see a visible manifestation of the Holy Spirit going, peace. This, <laughs> yes, it ruined everything. <laughs> wow, you ruined a visible manifestation of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> this is just insane. Mark, you're not supposed to be preaching yourself. You're supposed to be preaching Christ. Would you knock it off, please? Forget. We forget things. You know, we forget. I don't think it's any coincidence that Jesus sits down and with his last meal with his disciples, he says, do this in remembrance of me. 
do this in remembrance of me because I know you're going to forget that I was a catalyst in your life, and I know you're going to forget the catalyst that I've called you to be. Uh, nowhere does Jesus say, I'm calling you to be a catalyst, and I need you to remember and not forget to be a catalyst. No text says this. Do this in remembrance of me. Do this often and do this in remembrance of me. A few months ago, about eight months ago, I was taking a class uh, in the, on the historical books in seminary. And the historical books are essentially First Samuel to Chronicles. And it's the history of the nation of Israel. It's uh, all the kings and stuff like that. And I'm taking this class and I got to write a 15-page paper. And the first question in the paper says, what's the overall theme in this book? And, and as I'm thinking about it, like all, the, all these books, what's the overall theme that weaves between all the books? I came to the conclusion that it was a heart fully surrendered to God. That God had called Israel to have a heart fully surrendered to him. That they- really? Um, no, there's not a single passage that says that. They were to be a people set apart so that they could be a catalyst that would transform humanity, an accelerant that would transform humanity. And what that meant was that they had to have a heart fully surrendered to him, and that, that meant their finances, that they would selflessly give to God, and they'd take care of the poor and the downtrodden. Yeah, I got to get those finances in, because, you know, the seeker-driven model, most expensive model for doing, quote, church. And that they would be different than the world. And, and, and over and over again, Israel's heart would change. And they'd forget what God did, and and they'd get... You are aware that Substance Church is a seeker-driven church, so it looks exactly like the world, like no different at all. A hard heart and become very selfish, and then God would have to do something to pull them back and and, and bring them back to having a heart fully surrendered to him. And, And the next question in the paper said, how does this affect your ministry? And as I leaned back in my chair, I felt God just press on my heart. Mark is... What does it feel like when God presses on your heart? I'm curious. How do you know it wasn't just a bad piece of pizza that you had eaten prior to class? Is your heart fully surrendered to me? The answer would be no. Really? This is all law. Where's the gospel? What'd you do with Jesus on the cross again? So God's going, is your heart fully surrendered to me? No, it's not. So you better surrender it. Good night. I started thinking about when I first started interning here and how I, I, I had had this transformational moment where God met me at my lowest point, even though I rejected him and changed my life. And my whole life after that was dedicated to being a catalyst in other people's lives. How I, how I was interning when I, when I first started interning here and I met this guy named Jason. Jason showed up at the front door and, and it didn't take me long to figure out this guy was new to church. And he had, one of his friends had killed himself and he had come from a drug background and he didn't know any of my Christianese. So he, he goes into the auditorium. I grab one of the pastors and I say, hey, man, that guy's totally new to church. He comes out and, and the pastor goes, hey, what'd you think? And Jason said, I think I'm starting over. Next week, I saw Jason in the foyer and I'm like, Jason, how was your week? It's good to see you again. And he said, last week I was in the foyer and three people invited me to a small group. I went to all of them. What a bunch of cool people. And before you know it, the community came around Jason and he gave his life to Christ. By the way, um, you need uh, the, the message of Christianity is not that you need to give your life to Christ. The message of Christianity is that Christ gave his life for you. <sighs> Frustrating.
And every night when I would go home and I'd wonder why I'm working a full-time job, going to seminary full-time and interning in this church, I'd remember Jason. And I'd know it was for people like him. That was he brought to repentance of his sins and faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of his sins? Or did he just decide to give his life to Jesus and follow a bunch of rules? That's why I was doing it. You know, somewhere uh, along the way, I, I came on staff, and about a year later, Jason walked away from the faith. And that messed me up. I thought, are we, uh, are we a mile wide and an inch deep? Are we changing anybody's life? Yeah, that's about right. Mile wide, maybe a half an inch deep based on what the sermon is. Are we a catalyst at all? The years would go by, and a few months before I even took that class, I think my job, my call, became more of a job. It became more of an obligation. I was just going through the motions here. Maybe I was here because it was a cool church or because it was good for my family or it was a good career move. Maybe you can relate. Maybe your job's more of an obligation to you. Your marriage, your kids, your house, coming to church. It just became a weight on me, and I'm writing this paper, and I begin to confess it to my professor. You know, I say to my professor, I'm, I'm just like Israel. My heart isn't surrendered to God anymore. I... I've totally forgotten why he brought me here. I'm like Israel, Isaiah 17, 10, you have forgotten God, your savior, and you have not remembered the rock, your fortress, Psalms 106, 21. They forgot God, their savior, who had done great things in Egypt, Hosea 8. Okay, yes, you've forgotten God, your savior, so let's focus in on the savior piece. 14, Israel has forgotten its maker and built great places, and Judea has fortified cities. It was like, I, I'm like Israel. I've totally forgotten why God brought me here. My heart isn't surrendered to him. And it was like God grabbed me and he said, I'm going to take you back to the day before this was a job, before you got paid. It's like, oh, man. Wow. Um, really bad white man rap here. Airplanes in a night. Sometimes God can use secular music to wake you up. <laughs> And you know, I finished that paper and I said, I don't have it all figured out, but I do know one thing, that I'm going to live a life surrendered to God. And I'm going to be a cat. Cue sappy music. By the way, you're preaching about yourself, Mark. That's what you've been doing the whole time rather than preaching Christ. list for people to meet him. We're going to build a building in a few years. Actually, we're looking at land. We're going to buy land in like three months. You know, no matter where we buy that land, there's going to be a group of us who are going to say, why not here? Why not there? Why not closer to me? Why not where God has called us to be? And I'd say we forgot. We forgot why we're building that building. There's one piece of land I was standing on about two months ago, and across the street, there's a bar. And it's full of uh, people I've known for 20 years. 
as I imagined a building there, I thought, what if it's for a guy named Chris? And his wife, Molly, and their two kids who are living a life dead without Christ. Who frequent that bar. You know, Chris used to give me a ride to work when I didn't have a car. Or maybe it's a guy named Brent and his wife, Missy, and their two kids who are living a life empty without Christ. And when I was 21 and homeless, sleeping in a park, Brent put a roof over my head. Maybe it's Troy and his girlfriend, Shelly. Troy gave me my first job in the business world, but he's a devout atheist. Or Amanda and her two kids who are living without their dad who died of cancer just a few years ago. Or Kevin or Andy or Jason. The dozens of others who go to that bar on a weekly basis and hang out. We're probably not going to build a building on that land. But church, wherever we do, there's a bar across the street and down the road. There's a bunch of houses in a business sector full of people just like them who are living a life dead without Christ. See, we're not building a building to create a monument to honor the greatness of Substance Church. Look what we did. When we build a building, we are slamming a cross down in this city and we're saying, devil, you can't have them no more. Um, yeah, in order for that to happen, you actually need to preach the cross. Um, and so far you haven't done that. If you really are concerned about the devil not having the people in your neighborhood, then preach Christ and him crucified for their sins. You're not doing that. So the devil continues to have them because your life stories have no power to raise anybody from the dead spiritually. We are foolishly storming the gates of hell on behalf of the kingdom of heaven, and we are setting up a new dome in which the king of kings reigns and the Lord is Lord over all, a hospital where the hurting become the healed and the lost become the chosen. We are a people who haven't... Nice slogans. Um, Why don't you preach the gospel? forgot the God who blessed Abraham to birth Isaac, to birth Jacob, to birth a nation that would bring about a king that would die on a cross, not so that bad men could be good, but so that dead men could live. All right, first shot at actually preaching the gospel for real. Um, Nice. Can you explain that, please, instead of making it like a slogan afterthought during the sappy music section? So what do we do? Preach Christ, open up his word, exegete the texts. Mark, you convinced me. Convinced you of what? Thank you. You're talking to yourself. Good to know. In a moment, we're going to take communion. At all our campuses, we're going to take communion. And uh, before we do that, I'm going to give you an opportunity just between you and God to make a commitment to God about how much you're going to give in the catalyst offering in two weeks. Ugh. Really? How many fortunes have been wasted in these seeker-driven churches? And how you're going to be a catalyst where he's calling you to be a catalyst. You know, uh, 
couple months ago, right, right after I actually wrote that paper, I was out in the foyer at Northwestern, and I was shaking hands and, and greeting people, and someone tapped me on the shoulder, and I turned around, and it was Jason. I'd seen Jason a couple times, but he wasn't uh, really into this whole Jesus thing anymore. I said, hey, Jason, what are you doing here? And he, uh, he said, you know, Mark, some of the people that I brought here, I've had a really rough year, and they reached out to me and brought me back. I've actually been going to Fridley for some time now, but I just wanted to stop by and say hi. And I could just feel God whisper in my ear, don't you ever forget. It's for Jason and people like him. That's why you're here. Oh, we bow our heads, close our eyes. Then, man, serious. <clears throat> My mom does a better job of giving me a guilt trip than you do, but man, good night. Here you have a heart for the lost, and you won't even preach the gospel and preach God's word. Give me a break. Don't sit there and cry and moan about how much you care about the lost and the hurting in your community when you refuse to preach the gospel to them and you refuse to open up God's word and preach it. If you truly cared about the lost in your community, that's exactly what you would be doing. You would become a beacon and a lighthouse for the word of God and you would give a living voice to God's word by preaching it, exegeting it, and properly handling it and proclaiming Christ from every text. You sit there and you cry and you moan about how much you care about the hurting and the lost and how all these people are going to hell and how you're all upset because there's people that you grew up with hanging out in bars who are dead and don't know Christ, and yet you don't even preach the gospel. I, I mean, really? And it's right there in your Bible, sir. This is This is the equivalent of somebody who has... Literally a bazillion dollars sitting in their bank account crying and complaining about poverty in the world and going, oh, it's just so terrible that there's poverty in the world. I, it just breaks my heart. The people I grew up with, they, they, they're they poor and they don't have any money and they can't pay their bills. And, you know, I've got a bazillion dollars in the account, but I'm not going to write a check. No, no, I can't do that. That's what this is like. You sit there and you have your heart broken for the lost and you refuse to preach God's word. Give me a break. Repent. The solution is theology. The solution is sound doctrine. The solution is the proclamation of Christ and him crucified for sins. Become a beacon for the gospel. A place where you can go to hear God's word actually preached instead of getting these gum you to death, you know, little tiny uh, bite marks all over your ankles because you're being gummed by the law. No gospel. Unbelievable. Yeah, God's law only kills. It doesn't make alive. It's the gospel that makes alive. So preach the gospel. Oh. Anyway. So, uh, well... Well, we're at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. I'm going to go beat my head against a brick wall now. So glad that I'm back from vacation. <laughs> oh, man. So what would you think? You know, I'd love to get your feedback. 
you'd like to email me, you can. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Yeah, that's the gospel, and it's for you. 